This morning is our final Sunday looking at Philippians together. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 23. And now, in my time here at King's Chapel, there, there have been a couple of times when it's been my time to preach, and it just happened to fall on, for lack of a better phrase, the less desirable passages to preach. And that just means they're not exactly the John 3.16 type passages. And whenever these passages seem to show up, Pastor Lou graciously says, now you can either preach this text, or you can go ahead and do something that might be a little more comfortable. So naturally, I always say, no, I'll do the tough one. And uh, that's what I did today. I have elected to preach on the last four verses of the book. So now if you turned to Philippians chapter 4 verses 20 to 23 when I mentioned it a few minutes ago, you're probably looking at this passage thinking, how is he going to preach this? That's what I was thinking too. That's not what I'm thinking now, thankfully for all of you, but that's what I was thinking as I embarked on this homiletical journey. What passages like our text this morning demonstrate to us is that every part of the word of God is to benefit, is of benefit to us. The Apostle Paul, he wasn't mistaken when he said all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 1 Timothy 3.16 All of scripture, all of it, even the closing statements of a letter. But before we get to this benediction, I think we should take a stroll down memory lane. As we reach the end of a four-month journey in this book, I think it's important to remember what has brought us to this point. See, when we began this series, Pastor Lou informed us that we see either the word joy or the word rejoice 16 times throughout these four chapters. We saw also the name Jesus Christ, Christ or Lord, mentioned over 50 times. And the word gospel appears more in Philippians per 100 words than any other letter of the Bible. And that's not coincidence, That's intentional because they're all connected. Remember, the central theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is that eternal joy is only found in Jesus Christ and experienced both personally and corporately when we persistently pursue, apply, and spread the gospel. Joy comes from Christ through the gospel. Hence, gospel joy. Paul writes this joy-saturated letter from his imprisonment in Rome as he awaits to whether he will walk free or be executed. In chapter 1, Paul prays joyfully for the Philippian church as a result of their partnership with him in the gospel. And then in the next paragraph, Paul rejoices in, in the spreading of the gospel throughout Rome. 
Even when it's done by those who are, are preaching the gospel for selfish motives and selfish reasons. Why? Why does Paul rejoice? He tells us, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. Paul's sole purpose, his sole purpose in his living was for the sake of the gospel. We see that summed up beautifully in chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. From here, Paul takes a pause from looking at himself, and then he offers exhortation to the Philippians. He tells them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's urging them to live as good citizens of heaven, standing firm together on the firm foundation of the gospel. And Paul says to them, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. That's what living as citizens, worthy citizens, looks like. It's putting each other's needs first and foremost. Not doing anything from selfishness, but putting others' interests above your own. Living as as worthy citizens means having the mind of Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. Right? Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But we we can't stop there, right? Paul continues. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I love this. His exhortation turns into exaltation. That's the gospel joy that Paul has. Then Paul goes back to to just finish up this exhortation as he tells them, in light of all that Christ has done, obey, work out or live out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And as they are to live out what God is doing in them, Paul tells them to do so without grumbling or disputing so that they can be light in the world. And their obedience to the call of the gospel will bring Paul much joy knowing that his labor was not in vain. And Paul wraps up this, this, this section of exhortation with, with two examples. His close companions in his imprisonment, Timothy, his son in the faith, and Epaphroditus, his Philippian brother in the Lord. Both have shown what, what living as citizens worthy of the gospel looks like as they selflessly cared for and ministered to Paul in his time in Rome at this really difficult time in his life. 
And the encouragement he supplies to the Philippians is that he will, Lord willing, be sending both of them to see him. And if all really goes well, he would be able to join as well. But then after a bit of that that housekeeping, Paul moves into offering them more wisdom. Paul begins this, this section with the warning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Then he tells them, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the ones who mutilate the flesh, the ones whose confidence is in the flesh. Avoid them. Put no confidence in the flesh. If anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. But even he says, whatever gain I had, whatever confidence I had in the flesh, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Confidence should be placed in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And any good work after flows from that. Trust in Christ, not in yourself. And then he urges them to continue looking to Christ, cherishing their heavenly citizenship and standing firm in the Lord. As Paul is nearing the end of his letter, he tells them, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Don't don't be anxious about anything, but lean on the Lord. He says, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He urges them to not focus their minds on things that will bring them worry, things that will bring anxiety and despair, but rather on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Practice them. and The God of peace will be with you. In the past couple weeks, we've seen Paul move from God's peace into God's provision. As Paul testifies of, of God's provision in the midst of all situations, in hard times, in prosperous times. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Last week, we saw Paul's gratitude in, in the church's generosity. They gave out of their poverty for the sake of the gospel ministry. And just as, as God supplied for Paul's needs, even in the midst of his imprisonment, he tells the Philippians, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Not out of his riches, but according to his riches. And it's from here that Paul erupts into yet another doxology and this benediction that we'll be looking at today. And I wanted to remind us us of all that Paul had mentioned prior because as we close out this book, all these things 
All these concepts, these principles should be sitting in the backs of our minds. Just as it would have been on the minds of the Philippians who were hearing this letter read to them. So with all the gospel exhortations and the examples that Paul has given, let us now read the end of this letter, picking it up in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I will say I have been given an outline gift with this passage. Not only does it have like three distinct sections to it, which is beautiful in and of itself, it's already been alliterated for me. So both the title and the outline of the message this morning is the same. Glory, greetings, and grace. So let's first look at glory. Let's take a look at this doxology that that Paul breaks into. And the question we have to ask is, why does Paul add this when he does? And it's, it's almost like Paul has hit this threshold. This certain threshold of reflecting on all that God has done. And the only thing left to do, it's like he's, he reached, he's at the top. The only thing left to do is just blah, overflow with praise. See, leading up to this verse, he had just finished talking about the overwhelming love and the affection that he received from the Philippians, how his physical needs had been met. And then before that, he was looking over his entire life, the ups and the downs, and he saw how God had taught him true contentment. And then before that, he's, he's telling the Philippians to, to think on the things of God, of what is excellent. And as he's telling them that, I'm sure he's thinking about that. So eventually he just reaches this limit and he just explodes with praise and adoration for God's faithfulness. And he says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is doing here is worshiping. And he's worshiping how we are called to worship. A doxology, which which comes from the Greek word doxa, meaning glory, is a doxology is a response of praise to what God is doing or has said. It's a response to God's revelation of himself. That's what worship is. And in the case of this letter, Paul is, is reaching the end of an entire letter filled with God's goodness and God's faithfulness as seen in the work of Christ and the partnership with, in the gospel with the Philippians. And Paul's response is glory to God. Paul could reach the end of this letter and say, wow, tell you what, I have really learned how to navigate life. Let me tell you how you can live your best life now. Or he could reach the end of this and say, man, (laughs) these Philippian guys, 
Let me tell you what, you guys know how to take care of a guy. You know how to take care of a guy or what? You guys are great. You guys are awesome, right? He could do that. But he gives glory where the glory is due. Not to himself and not necessarily to the Philippians, but he gives it to God. See, without the triune God, Paul wouldn't know the secret to contentment because he wouldn't know Christ. He wouldn't be shaped and molded by the Spirit. Without the work of Christ and the people of Philippi, they, they wouldn't be selfless in the way that they've been selfish. They wouldn't give to Paul the way they gave to Paul. It's by the work of God in Paul and the Philippian church that they are who they are. So Paul gives the glory to God. He reminds them that, that God isn't just some distant, far-off, unreachable deity. He's our Father. That's what he says, to our God and Father. He's a personal God who, who works in personal ways. We just saw it. He's a, he's a God who supplies for personal needs. When I think of the role of a father, one of the first things that comes to mind is, is someone who provides for their children. A father provides love, provides protection, supplies nourishment and care for his children. Now, in our, in our imperfect world, I'm well aware that there are imperfect fathers who haven't fulfilled these duties in any way that they should have. Maybe they've provided for material needs but have failed to provide any kind of love and care. There's food on the table, but there's no affection that you received. Or, or maybe they, they never provided anything at all and were entirely absent altogether. I, I know there's many realities where, where fathers have not done what they're supposed to do. And that's a painful reality for, for some, maybe even many. But, but let me reassure you of this. God is not that kind of father. He is perfectly loving. He provides perfectly. He cares for us perfectly. And Paul knew that. Paul, and he internalized that. Paul clung to that. Our God is not a, a distant God. He's personal. He's our Father. And our God, our God alone is worthy of glory. And when we talk about glory in this context, we're, we're talking about God being worthy of praise, worthy of adoration, worthy of worship. Glory means, it means weightiness. When we ascribe glory to God, we're affirming his, his power, we're affirming his might, we're, we're affirming his, his weightiness, he's heavy. It's his importance above all things. We're, when we give him glory, we're acknowledging that. And I think of John's vision in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4. Um, when the 24 elders are worshiping, they're in this throne room and they say, worthy 
are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then in Revelation 5, with all the myriads of of heavenly beings saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's glory. There is no one else worthy of such exaltation. Our God is personal. Our God is worthy of Glory, and that glory is everlasting. See, Paul concludes this doxology with the phrase, forever and ever. Meaning an endless cycle, forever and ever. It just keeps going and 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 going. This glory, this praise, this honor, it's not a, it's not a temporary praise intended just for the moment, just for the circumstance that you're in. It's an eternal praise. Goes on and on and on. Just as God is infinitely glorious, He is to be glorified infinitely. Our worship should always be driven by God's revelation to us. And that's why when Paul contemplates God's character and the work of Christ, he arrives at these moments of praise. That's why for us, when the the sermon's over, this week when the video is done, we respond to the word of God and worship through song. Because think about the grand scheme of eternity, this, this ongoing Glory forever and ever. When we are dwelling with God forever, we're not just getting glimpses of His beauty and seeing the shadows. We're, we're actually living in the blinding light of His glory. Our whole life will be praise and adoration. God will receive glory and honor forever and ever because we're in His presence forever and ever. He's revealing Himself forever and ever. And so that cycle of God's revelation and our praise goes on and on. Just as we sung together, we'll sing endlessly the glory of God. The cycle of praise will continue forever and ever. Our eternal, personal God and Father is worthy of eternal praise, eternal glory. Amen. Paul, adding amen to the end of this doxology, similar to other doxological statements in the New Testament, is his way of, of like underlining the significance of what has just been said. Amen is, is more than just indicating like, okay, the prayer's over. That's, that's kind of how amen comes across now. It's like, well, how do you end a prayer? Well, amen. Amen's the ender. That's what amen is. Well, no, amen is the underline. Amen is the emphasis. So let it be. That's what amen means. So when Paul says, he's saying to to God and to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So let it be. It's the emphasis. That's what the amen means. It's not just I'm done with this thought. It means let that be. That's important. Remember that. 
when we, when we pray and we say amen at the end, we're saying, so let it be. It's an important thing we're doing. We're praying to the God of the universe. We say amen, so let it be. There's significance. May we not be a people who put our confidence in the things of this world. Who don't glory in the things of this world or elevate too highly the people of this world. Church, we have been brought into the family of the eternal God of the universe through the perfect and atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing that compares to that. There's, there's nothing or, or no one who can bring us more confidence, hope, and joy. And therefore, there is no thing or living thing worthy of eternal glory except God himself. So in all things, let us remember the glory be to God, our God and Father, forever and ever. Amen. Now let's turn our attention to verses 21 and 22, and we'll look at the greetings. We see the glory. Now we're going to look at the greetings. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You'll notice Paul Paul closes out the epistle with three different greetings. That's That's different than what we do. Like we end most things with, let me know when you get a chance. Thanks. Bye. Like that's what we write now. Because we don't write letters, right? We write texts. We write emails. That's what we do. Uh, let me know when you get a chance. Thanks. Bye. Like that's what we do. So, but Paul gives three greetings and they're three very important greetings. The first greeting is Paul's greeting to the Philippian church. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read this and you just see it being as like, and hey, say hi to everyone for me. I really miss them. Say, just say, just say hi to everyone as a whole for me. Um, kind of similar to how if a global partner was to say, uh, write, write to the pastor elders here and say hi to the church of King's Chapel. Say hi to King's Chapel as a whole for me. That's what it would appear Paul is saying here, if we just read through it quickly. But the phrase Paul uses is actually more personal than that. It's not just this global hello. See, when he says, greet every saint, his intention is for them to greet every single saint, personally, individually. The people of the church in Philippi, they mattered to Paul. Just because he's an apostle doesn't elevate to him to some untouchable status, right? He wants to greet every single person of that church in order that, in order that they would feel personally his love for them as he felt personally their love for him and how they ministered to him in his imprisonment. Each person in that church, they gave out of their poverty to support him. And he wants to greet them with the same care. Not just a, a drive-by hello, but he says, greet every saint. You tell every, every person of that church hello on my behalf. 
See, the church in Philippi, it wasn't just a place that bankrolled Paul's ministry. It was real people really partnering with him in the gospel. And I think of our gospel partners in the same way. See, when they, when they come to visit, when they, when they stop by King's Chapel, they don't just get up here, make their statement to the church, and, and then leave. No, our gospel partners, they come, they present what they're doing, but then they go out into the foyer, they have a table, they want to say hi, they want to meet the people of King's Chapel, they want to meet the people who have been a part of their ministry. That's why they're gospel partners. There's this personal connection between not just King's Chapel as a name, but the people of King's Chapel and the global partners, the gospel partners. We're not just funding them. We're we're partnering together for the sake of the gospel. And that's why our our community groups, each community group has a gospel partner that, that we're praying for and hopefully communicating with and getting to know on a more personal level. Because we're partnering together. It's personal. So Paul's greeting to the Philippian church is a a personal greeting to each person of the church. The second greeting we see is from the brothers who are with Paul. The brothers who are with Paul. Now what is that referring to? Who is that referring to? It's more likely that these brothers are those truly close people who are with Paul with Paul during this time of imprisonment. Namely, Timothy and Epaphroditus, right? We've seen them named in the letter. And there's possibly some others that have not been explicitly named, but who are with him in Philippi as well. These brothers, they say hello. And I love that Paul uses the description as brothers because it shows the true camaraderie between them. Like he didn't view himself as superior to them either. Was he a mentor to them? Yes. But was he better than them? No. Right? They were brothers in the Lord. And, and those brothers, they sent their greetings to the Philippian church. There's this, this, this community despite distance. Just as the Philippians were significant to Paul, they were significant to the brothers who were with him. I mean, especially Epaphroditus. He was from Philippi. These were, these were his people, he sends his greetings, the, that personal affection and greeting. And the additional greeting from the brothers, it helps to reinforce what Paul taught back in chapter 2. In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Paul was no better than those he was mentoring, and the brothers with him were no better than the Philippians. They are all in gospel ministry together. And they're sending their greetings with love. And then the third greeting, it kind of widens this circle a little bit more. We had Paul, then we have the brothers. Now we have this third greeting. All the saints greet the Philippians. Not just Paul, not just Timothy, Epaphroditus. All the saints, all those fellow believers in Rome, they greet you. Those who, who we heard about earlier in the book, who were emboldened to speak the gospel. Paul's probably even including those who were preaching the gospel out of their selfish motives. All the saints, they greet you. 
There's this mutual bond between these two churches. And it's a bond that goes deeper than just this, this nationalistic uh, connection between Philippi and Rome. Philippi being a Roman colony. See, the bond that, that ties these, these two bodies of believers together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All believers come into salvation the same way, right? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It doesn't matter how they were raised. It doesn't matter how much or how little they had. Whether they were born in Rome, born in Philippi. They were all united under the blood of Jesus. They are all saints. And those believers, those saints in Rome, send their greetings, send their love, send their affection. Now, before we move forward, I want to remind us that when Paul says saint... He isn't saying it in the way that much of our culture has used the word saint. I think it's important that we remember that. See, saint as used in scripture is intended for, it's just another word for a believer in Christ, for a follower of Jesus. That's a saint. That's what saint means biblically. That definition got a little no, not a little, got a lot distorted when, when the Catholic Church started deeming people as saints based on how they lived their lives. So now culturally, saint has since meant someone who is above and beyond morally and spiritually. That's what we consider a saint in our culture. But that's not what Paul means at all. That's not what the scriptures mean at all when they say saint. We are all saints. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and call him Lord, you're a saint. There's not this hierarchy of Christians, right? You're either a saint redeemed by the grace of God or you're a sinner living in rebellion to God. There's only one person, one person worthy of ultimate praise, who we look to as perfect, who lived righteously, and that's Jesus. It's not Mother Teresa, right? It's not Patrick of Ireland, trying to avoid saying St. Patrick, because that would kind of go against the whole saint thing we're talking about, but it's not Patrick of Ireland. It's not Billy Graham, right? It's Jesus. He's the only one perfect and worthy of our praise. He's the one whose name is exalted above every other name, at whose name every knee will bow and confess him as Lord. He's the center. Where are the saints around him bowing down in worship? It's important that we remember that so that we don't put others on a pedestal, so that we, we don't put ourselves on a pedestal, or so that we don't, we don't look down on ourselves and belittle ourselves. We need to see ourselves as God sees us in Christ, his redeemed children, his saints. And with that said, Paul mentions a specific group of saints within the saints. And the second part of this greeting is from those of Caesar's household. This is a big deal. Caesar was, was worshipped as a god in and himself back then. 
And the Caesar at the time was this very kind gentleman. You may know him. His name was Nero. Now, if you haven't heard of Nero, he was ruthless. He hated Christians. He slaughtered Christians. They say that his, his gardens were lined with the bodies of Christians and set ablaze. That's the kind of hatred towards God we're talking about under Nero. And yet, there are people within his household who are fellow saints. That would be a cause for rejoicing for the Philippians. Now, this phrase within Caesar's household doesn't necessarily mean someone uh, directly in his family. It could. It doesn't have to mean that, though. It could also mean someone working for Caesar, people within the high-up ranks of the Roman Empire. They would be considered part of Caesar's household, this, this, this kind of this upper tier of life. Whatever the case was, there were believers in the inner circle of the biggest persecutor of the church at the time. The gospel was advancing to places that it could only get to by the work and the power of the Spirit of God. And by what means did the Spirit use to do this? Paul's faithful gospel ministry. Remember, in chapter 1, Paul said that all the imperial guard knew his imprisonment was for Christ. And where else did the imperial guard, uh, the imperial guard serve? Caesar's household. So Paul continued to preach the gospel in his imprisonment. Right, He didn't throw himself a pity party. He preached the gospel, and the Spirit of God used that faithful preaching to produce fruit in seemingly rocky, dry, barren soil. That blows my mind now, a couple thousand years later. It probably blew the tops off their heads when the Philippians heard that. It just makes you want to say, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Doesn't it? It should. And it should also make us pause. It should make us think about our own culture. Think about the people in our lives who we think, yeah, there's no way. There's no way there could be redemption for them. There's no way the gospel could save them. Listen. Listen. There's no one so bad that they cannot be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. There's no one's heart that is so hard that it can't be softened by the Spirit of God and conformed to look like Christ. And we need to be ever mindful of where we once were before Christ. And and remember that when we think or say others can't receive grace, well, we did. We did. We didn't deserve it. We received it. God can do anything. He's in complete and total control. He can soften the hardest of hearts. But people can only respond to what they hear. They can only respond to what they hear. So we need to be all the more diligent to preach the gospel with boldness and conviction as the saints in Rome did. 
Because you never know how God can use it for his glory and to build his kingdom. Aren't you glad we're taking a deeper look at these greetings? Think about what we're talking about here. And we're just literally reading the words, Paul greets you, the brothers greet you, all the saints greet you, and and those of Caesar's household say hello. And look what we're getting out of it. We typically look at these greetings as afterthoughts at the end of the book, but the Philippians, they would have received these with such joy and appreciation. Grateful for the partnership they have with Paul and the fellow saints in Rome. And they would have been so overwhelmingly encouraged to hear that the gospel had advanced into Caesar's household. I'm glad we're looking at these greetings. We've seen Paul give God glory. He offered the Philippians greetings. And finally, he ends the letter in the same way he began in chapter 1, verse 2, with grace. Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Those are the final words of this letter. See, the Apostle Paul, he always begins and ends his letters the same way. He begins with the greeting, grace to you. And he ends with the benediction, grace be with you. There's, there's no better theological concept or reminder to end these letters than with grace. See, grace reminds the church of how they obtain their salvation. Right? Grace reminds the church of how they obtain their salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Right? Ephesians 2, 8. Nothing they did saved them from their sin. But it is only by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on Calvary that they don't stand condemned in their sin. Right? Romans 3, 23 to 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is this undeserved, unmerited gift of God. Though we don't deserve it, God freely gives it to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You can't earn it through works. If we've learned anything from the Apostle Paul, it's that works amount to nothing when it compares to a holy God. Our best deeds will always fall short. But by God's grace, we can have Christ's perfect Righteousness granted if we repent of our sins and believe in him. So my question to you this morning is, have you put your faith and put your trust in Jesus? Have you received that saving grace? Make today the day. Grace reminds us of how we obtained our salvation. Grace also reminds us of how we are to live out our salvation. Paul doesn't pen a letter like this and expect the readers to just dig their heels in and start living harder or start striving harder to live better. That's like pushing a boulder up this endless mountain. You'll never make it and you'll end up crushed at the bottom. Paul writes to these churches recognizing they're not going to be able to do this in their own strength, but it's only by God's grace that they can. 
It will only be by the Spirit of God transforming hearts and conforming wills to look more like Christ. See, Paul doesn't want them to just know this cognitively in their minds either. He wants them to hold this deep, this grace deep within in their spirit, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit in their soul. We talk about preaching the gospel to yourselves here all the time. Why do we do that? Because a consistent gospel reminder of the grace we've been shown and are continually shown will keep us from trying to be our own saviors. We rest in the perfect Savior and we walk according to His Spirit dwelling within us. We're not, we're not singing this song this morning, though we probably could have. But I love songs like All I Have is Christ. Because they, they just, they help us to rehearse the gospel, to remember where we've been and what Christ has done. And verse two of the song says, And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And in verse three, it says, Now Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. The Christian life is one marked by the grace of God from beginning to end. By grace, we're saved. By grace, we live in obedience to what God has called us to. And by grace, we will finish the race and arrive safely home. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, this text, it may not explicitly say the word grace, but this is God's grace. We, by God's power, by God's grace, are being guarded that we would receive our eternal inheritance. God's grace is sufficient. As Paul told us in chapter 1 of this letter, And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as we conclude our study in this letter, let us continue to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, pursuing a deeper understanding of the gospel of grace, applying its truth to our lives and sharing it with others. That our God and Father would receive all glory and honor and that we would receive great joy. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the gift that this letter has been to our church over the past four months. May may the principles and the concepts of it continue to just help us grow long after today. We ask you this morning for your grace. Grant us the grace to put to death our sin, and to walk in the light of all that Christ has done. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we ask this morning that the gospel would bring us exceeding joy. Individually and corporately as the family here at King's Chapel. And we recognize that this will only happen by your power and your grace. To you, our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.